If you were here last week, you may remember that I uh, spoke on the feeding of the 5,000, and Larry Burks had provided me with an appropriate cartoon, and I wondered if he was going to do it again, and he did. So here we go. Take my hand, Peter, and don't let go. <laughs> so there, there you go. Actually, I'm thinking of walking on water. I'm pretty proud of my grandsons, Parker, Silas, and Oren, who appear to have walked on water when they were in Colorado this summer. Look at that. There's Parker coming right across the water there at Great Sand. Yep, there's uh, Silas walking on the water. And look at Oren. Woohoo! Isn't that great? Yeah. So my uh, grandchildren uh, have already nailed that one. Anyway, um, it's such a familiar story, uh, and it's a well-known image of walking in the water. It's actually the way to describe an amazing person. Uh, in my experience of having changed churches a few times, and you, your, your name goes out there, and, and, and all this information about you comes to the congregation. They're ready to vote and hire you. I've had a couple people say, gosh, I read your bio do you walk on water too? You know, so that's kind of that expression that we use, people that may not even be familiar with the story. It's part of our, our, our cultural language sometimes. It's also what's being communicated sometimes in an embellished resume, we might say. Uh, make sure you put that one in there too. But let's not let humor and familiarity get in the way of what the rabbi is teaching and revealing here. We're following the rabbi this summer and looking at these texts from Matthew. There's actually some profound theology and Christology going on here. Theology, literally the study of God, and Christology, the study of, or the understanding of the person of Christ, what we learn all through Scripture, we create a Christology. Who is the person of Christ? We, um, when we speak of God, we speak of God as being both transcendent and imminent. There's a couple other vocabulary words. Transcendent means big and overall and all-powerful, all-present, the transcendence, the, the holy other of God, if you will. But when we speak of the imminence, we talk about God being close and near, and particularly in the incarnation. So God is both transcendent and imminent. And it was on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus was both. In the story of walking on the water, Jesus is both the transcendent God Almighty and the imminent near God who draws close. And it was on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus was both. Here's Megan and me on the Sea of Galilee back in June. That's the water in the background. We were on a boat, did not even step over the side. We didn't even want to give the walking on the water thing a try. And here we are looking back towards shore from that same place. You can see the wake of our boat and back towards the area where we stayed. That's the east side of, of the Sea of Galilee. Not as much development on that side, but a few little kibbutzes and resorts, uh, one where we stayed. This transcendence of God, this bigness of God, meets with his nearness in this story, this miracle. This, his amazing power and his personal presence come together in the story of walking on the water. And so this is what I want to look at this morning. Then in this double miracle, because he does stop the storm in Matthew's version, this double miracle of walking on the water and stopping the storm, we see Jesus both as powerful Lord over creation and as the God who draws near. Lord over creation, God who draws near. And as we follow the rabbi, we learn to sharpen our focus on him and trust him in the dark and scary places of our life. Or we might say in the words of the song we just sang, we trust him even in the wind and the waves. So first of all, we're going to look at Jesus here. First of all, present with the Father in prayer. And then secondly, we'll look at Jesus present with the disciples in distress. Transcendent, imminent. And then thirdly, kind of take a look at Jesus both, I'm calling it cosmic and close here. 
Jesus is present with the Father. This story follows right on the heel, immediately on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, it starts with the word immediately. Jesus feeds them and, they, uh, and, and the crowds go away. And then it says, and immediately Jesus gets back to where he was when the 500 people showed up. So we're going to say, meanwhile, Jesus gets back to soul care. <laughs> Meanwhile, back to prayer. It's where he was headed at the beginning of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, Jesus had heard about the death of John the Baptist back in Jerusalem, and he was grieving over that, and he took the disciples away to process their their pain and grief. But the people come and find him, and and that's where Jesus sees them, and he's interrupted, and, and he says... He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it says that he heals them and he feeds them more than 5,000. Now he's done with that and soul weary again. He is off to a mountain now by himself to be present with the Father in prayer. This is a verse that's often pulled out of Scripture saying you need time away with, alone with God. No matter how extroverted you are, you need time alone. In fact, guess who did it? Jesus did it. Jesus went away alone to pray. Do you ever wonder what Jesus' prayer was like when he prayed to God? You know, did he, did he use E-H-F, E-T-H at the end? Like, I prayeth to you, my Lord Fathereth. I mean, did he... What, what, did, what did they talk about? How, how did they communicate? Did he use the language of that day, the Aramaic that he spoke, or was it... What was it like when Jesus knelt in prayer to his Father? Or was he silent? And listening to the spirit that they shared together speak to him. Were they discussing? Were they processing? Was he asking? Was he discerning next steps? We know at one point he was because he went down and that's when he chose the 12 disciples. We don't know. But together they were the transcendent God there together as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. We don't know, but it was a priority for Jesus at this moment, at this time in intense ministry for him to be in touch with his Father. This essential soul care is a, is a transferable thing that we can do when we follow the rabbi. What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? We can't know what Jesus would do if we don't know what Jesus did, and we know that he did this. <laughs> Time with God. And as we read it, it was nearly all night. Because the scripture says at one point, when evening came, evening came, that's the early part of the night, right? When evening came, he was there alone. And then Matthew says the storm starts in the middle of the night. And then it says, shortly before dawn, he went to them on the water. Evening to shortly before dawn. But did you catch that? The storm starts somewhere in between. And Jesus doesn't go immediately. (laughs) Was he letting them struggle a little bit? Or did he need to finish his time with God? Don't know, but eventually... It came time to move on from care for himself to care for them. And so he moves from this self-care to disciple care. There's an interesting word after the word immediately in verse 22. It says, immediately, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. He made them because he said so. <laughs> he made them. The word is a strong word apparently. It can even be translated as compelled them. He compelled them to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the lake. This compelling, it suggests this intensity at the time of immediately, and it suggests perhaps even a crisis and and a need for some quick action. John records this story, and he says that at this point, the crowd, quote unquote, intended to make Jesus king. The crowd, 
that had just been fed now wants to make Jesus king. And Jesus says, we got to get out of here because they are so off base, this could get out of control. Perhaps that's what happened. Whatever it is, they're totally misunderstanding the mission of Jesus. It's possible that the disciples kind of got caught up in this enthusiasm going, yeah, great idea. They're like riding on this victory. We got to hand out food to 5,000 people. Perhaps Jesus needs to get them removed from the area quickly to get perspective. Don't know, but he made them. He compelled them. And whatever it is, it happens quickly. It happens quickly. They're into a boat, and he's up the mountain. Up the mountain for soul care and relationship. But then comes the storm. And by morning, he is ready for disciple care. And he moves from the presence, his presence with the Father in prayer to being Jesus present with the disciples in their distress. Verse 25 says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And it is a lake, not a sea, by the way. <laughs> Actually, the middle of this verse is really the most important. The walking on water was not just an act. It wasn't just a display of power like, look at this, look what I can do now. It was really just his way of getting quickly to the disciples. Yes, it's a big miracle, but you have to realize the intent of it was not to show off the intended intention was to show up and get to the disciples. He's getting to the disciples. He moves from that transcendent place of presence with God the Father to this imminence nearness with the disciples who are in distress, who are struggling against the storm. He's getting to the disciples to bring the reality of his presence to them. He is the God who draws near. He really is the God who draws near. Then and now. That's the message, I believe, in part, what Jesus and Matthew are communicating to us. He's the God who draws near. But it's not so reassuring at first, because the disciples totally freak out. They're like, oh my gosh! They're like, Jesus shows up to help them, and they're terrified, the scripture says. Terrified. The NIV says they were thinking that it's a ghost. They can't comprehend the reality of Jesus' presence in the midst of their distress. Remember, the storm itself was already freaking them out. But at least bad storms they were familiar with, walking on water was a new concept. It did not fit their view of reality, even though they had seen power and miracle come through Jesus before. But Jesus reassures them not only with his physical presence, but he speaks into their fear. He speaks into their distress. And it says, but immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus says, it is I. Commentators say that this could be interpreted simply as, hey, it's me. But also note that the words used and the way they are constructed here kind of harken back to the other I am's of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus did that, that harkens back to who on a mountain in front of a burning bush? Moses. Moses who says, who shall I say when I go to Pharaoh to get my people out of land? Who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell them the great I am sent me. I am that I am, says God. And when Jesus says, it is I, there's something deeper than, hey guys, it's me. Who shall I send? Who shall I say sent me? I am. 
Some of you know the name Gary Burge. He's a New Testament professor at Wheaton College and taught at North Park University several years ago. And a friend of Naperville Coven. He spoke during one of our interim periods in the past here and preached several times. And Gary talks about this, and he says, um, he notes that this isn't the first big water miracle that Jesus and Moses were involved in. Obviously, we know the Moses story of the parting of the waters as well. He notes the parallel of the Red Sea in Galilee in this case. He notes the parallels of the reassurance of the fear not. God said it to Moses from the burning bush. When Moses stood trembling before a burning bush, God said, don't be afraid. Just as Jesus said to the disciples in the storm, don't be afraid. But especially this declaration of supreme, eternal, benevolent being, I am, it is I. I will be what I will be, says Jesus. As a transcendent God who is fully present to his people. Gary says, even though he is providing an awesome and overwhelming presentation of his power, they need not fear. Transcendence and imminence. High and holy and powerful over all creation. And close and caring. Lord in the storm. I thought of this when Megan emailed me on Friday afternoon with news from one of her colleagues who had just sent an email to several colleagues. And she shared with them that she had been on vacation recently and God had really taken her to Psalms 27. Read the whole thing when you get home. It's amazing. But she had really been drawn to Psalm 27 as she was thinking about the future and, and was really kind of not quite sure why God had drawn her attention to it so much. And she waits in her email till about three-quarters of the way through and says, then the day before my birthday, I got the diagnosis that I have breast cancer. Wind and waves. Frightening wind and waves. And then in this email, she particularly draws out Psalm 27, 13, and 14. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Take heart, take courage in the wind and the waves. Mark and John's telling of this story. It's in Mark and John, not in Luke. Remember last week we said, feed it 5,000, the only miracle in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. And this one, and usually the ones they share in common are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John, but John does have this one, and Mark has this one. But they both stop right here. They both stop at the end of the storm. John just says they kind of they get in the boat and they go back to shore. Mark says he got in the boat and the winds died down. So Mark kind of includes the fact that there was this miracle of the storm ending. Matthew alone tells us about Peter and walking on the water. That's not in all the Gospels. It's only in Matthew. Which is really interesting because Mark's, Mark was not one of the disciples. He was not an eyewitness of Jesus. Matthew was and John was. And Mark... Mark's primary source material, do you know who Mark, who heard Mark was very close to and got all of his source material from? Peter. Okay, so Mark heard the whole story. Peter didn't mention this to Mark. Or if he did, he edited it for him. <laughs> we don't know, but I, 
just interesting things that you think of when you read the Bible, but not as important a story other than the fact that it's here. Matthew has included it. We believe and know that it happened. And the message basically to Peter, without going into it a lot, was focus, Peter, focus. Peter, do you ever do that to your kid? (laughs) Focus, Peter. Impulsive, enthusiastic, speak before thinking Peter. We see it all through the Gospels. And he sees this, he's amazed by it, and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Jesus just said it as I, so it is. So Peter says, Let, tell me to come to you on the water. And so Jesus doesn't say, Peter, think about it, really. He says, okay, come, come. And the next miracle here, there's three miracles, really. Jesus walking on the water, coming to the storm. Peter walked on the water. He really did. Peter actually believes it can happen and it happened. He takes Jesus as his word. And as long as he was focused, eyes riveted on Jesus, he stayed afloat. But what does it say? Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Now there's all kinds of interpretations of this. Is this a fail for Peter? Well, he walked on the water. (laughs) It's a powerful discipleship lesson here, really. It's a kind of a follow-the-rabbi reality check for us because it will happen to all of us. We all lose focus on Jesus. The wind and the waves sneak up on us and overwhelm us. And learning to focus takes time. And there's some fails along the way that only reinforce the need to keep our focus on Jesus. In some ways, it's really the way of discipleship, isn't it? I was thinking about that this week, and the executive board met last Monday, and we're beginning to kind of revisit vision and mission and uh, working on perhaps some new goals as we move forward in the next two to five years. And I was reviewing mission vision statement. You know, the, our mission statement's really long. I can't actually even repeat the first part of it. But the last line says, disciple makers who know, love, and serve. I was thinking about disciple makers. This is where we encourage each other in our walk. And we don't call out the fails of taking our eyes off Jesus. We look to the lessons learned and encourage one another as we learn to keep our eyes on Jesus, whatever the wind and waves are of life. There's a discipleship lesson to Peter, to the other 11, and to us today in the story. Anyway, While Jesus questioned Peter's faith and noted his doubt, he also saved him. Immediately, it says, he grabbed him. Because Jesus was not disappointed in Peter. He still loved him. He still taught him. He still forgave him. He still filled him with his spirit and used him mightily for the kingdom. We all need to sharpen our focus on Jesus, who is friend, protector, deliverer, guider, shepherd, and the God who draws near and he is one with the Father. Or we might say here thoroughly, Jesus is both cosmic and close. 32 and 33 again say this, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, that those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. The story about the storm stopping reminded me, and the calming story reminded me of one of our favorite Dr. Seuss poems. 
The storm starts when the drops start dropping, and when the drops stop dropping, then the storm starts stopping. I can't read it very well there, but the storm starts when the drops start dropping. When the drops stop dropping, then the storm starts stopping. When Jesus dropped into the boat, the storm started stopping and the drops stopped dropping. It's a reminder, even from Dr. Seuss, that these are something that we have no control over. Megan Shear being outside a hut in Congo when the sky is open and we can't tell it to stop. It just happens. We can't do anything to control it. But the storm here in this story is all under control. It's all under control of this one who is both cosmic, Lord of creation, and the one who is close. He is sovereign Lord of creation. He is Lord in the storm. He has power over the natural world. Now, as you might guess, I mentioned last week somebody that tried to explain away the feeding the 5,000 as they just all shared their lunch and it was great. This one's explained away too that actually walking on the water can mean walked along the water, which means it might have just been on the shore where it was shallow. Well, why did that terrify the disciples is what I want to say. Oh my gosh, she's walking on the shore! He is Lord over the... Na- we can't control it. Nothing we can do. Even that new movie, Geostorm, which talks about controlling the climate, just runs into trouble anyway. Don't go see it. it looks, anyway, I didn't, it looks amazing. But We don't have control. But he is sovereign over creation. And he can do that, and he did it. Water and storm. Walking on the water, calming the storm. And as the disciples see this, they are convinced, and they worship his fullness. Truly, you are the Son of God. They're getting it. Two weeks from today, our text is the one where Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi in front of a pagan temple and says, Who do you say that I am? And who answers? He's growing. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And here in the boat, they say, Truly, you are the Son of God. But they will lose focus. They will slip. They will sin. They will even run away at the time of the crucifixion. But Jesus will draw them back and remind them that he alone is their focus. In our discussion at Executive Board last Monday when we were discussing vision and mission, we brought up the idea of core values. We've never really done a list of core values as a church, and we talked about a little bit And it was actually Pastor Diana who suggested this, that we really have a one-word core value. Jesus. (laughs) Let's be about Jesus in the way we envision the future. Let's be about Jesus in the way we relate to one another. Let's be about Jesus in the way we do church and do life and impact our world. Jesus, who is both a transcendent God and the God who draws near, near to those in need and in distress and on the margins and everywhere in between. So as we move forward following the rabbi, we need to first of all ask, what are the wind and waves in our life? What are your wind and waves? And then how can you sharpen your focus and your following skills? It's not just that end of a retreat pray and read my Bible more. It is. But it's a sharpening of focus on what is it that I need to learn? What will it be that will help me follow closer? 
and to really live out this faith so that it's not just in my head. And then finally, this reminder that we do worship the unchanging one. We worship the sovereign Lord of the universe who doesn't change. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love these stories. And we're so grateful that they don't just stay story, but they come alive because you are alive. And so, Jesus, our highest value is you. To see you, to know you, to follow you, to trust you, to serve you, to honor you, to glorify you. We thank you that you are the unchanging one. We pray this in your name. Amen.